This weekend on CityCast Denver. I'm here with my producer, Paul Caroli. Hi, Paul. Hey, Bree. So we're doing something different this weekend. We're going to share a little podcast extra. Can you tell our listeners about it? Well, yeah. I mean, let's just pause for a second. Do you... Do you smell that? Is that... Is that redistricting in the air? I wish it had a smell. It would make it a little bit easier of a topic to cover. It's very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) It is complicated. Oh, my gosh. I've talked to, I don't know, a handful of people, like experts, all different perspectives over the last few weeks. And I just could not figure out what's happening, what's important, why it matters. Um, So I am so grateful that we have this bonus episode to share because our friends at the Get More Smarter podcast, who are these like really fun, smart, lefty, politically savvy guys, Jason Bain and Ian Silveri, they've been around Colorado politics forever. They have all the local politicians on their show. Uh, They did an episode about redistricting this week and they said it was cool if we shared it with you all. That's awesome, because I know it's an issue that we've been talking about, like you said, for weeks. How do we cover redistricting in an interesting way that brings our listeners into the conversation? And I think uh, Jason and Ian really know how to do it. Absolutely. And in this episode, they interviewed Evan Wyloge of the Colorado Springs Gazette, who covered redistricting 10 years ago. So he has this interesting perspective to put our current process, which is different from the way we did it 10 years ago, um, into into uh, into context, and I, I love this episode. I think I think you all are going to like it. Cool! I can't wait. Well, here's more from the Get More Smarter podcast. brains it's time once again for the get more smarter podcast this is episode number 88 i'm jason bain i'm ian silveri welcome citycast denver listeners this week on the get more smarter podcast our favorite colorado insurrectionist joins the u.s senate republican primary we're taking bets on how badly this ruins gop chances to beat michael bennett in 2022 Our seventh favorite congressperson from Colorado makes us ask, once again, what the hell is wrong with our seventh favorite congressperson from Colorado? The Colorado Republican Party doesn't know the first rule of Fight Club, so they break the hell out of it. And we have another edition of Map Madness, when we discuss the brand new redistricting and reapportionment process in Colorado. And we interview Evan Wyloge, reporter for the various gazettes and coloradopolitics.com, who has had the distinct pleasure of covering this public political cartographic process, not once, but twice. You'd think that after doing this once in Arizona, you'd never, ever want to do this again. But Evan is quite the redistricting reporter. The man knows his redistricting. God. The man knows his redistricting. I will will give him that. We'll talk a little bit more about redistricting in a bit, including our interview with Evan Wyloge. But first, we want to talk about the U.S. Senate race in Colorado in 2022. The Republican side has gotten... A little more crowded, and what we would like to refer to as the clown car of the Colorado Senate race has a new driver in State Representative Ron Hanks. This is the same guy who was at the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., that didn't show up to the first month of the legislative session. This is the same guy that said that 
was because he had a like a like laryngitis, a, like a sore throat, right? Laryngitis, <laughs> laryngitis, but he like obviously got COVID at the insurrection <laughs> super spreader event, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Right. <laughs> this is also the same guy who, if you're a regular listener of this show, you've heard clips from him before, uh, I- including this uh, fun item about slavery and uh, that includes a lynching joke. Being called Mr. Lynch uh, might be a good thing for what I'm about to say. No, just kidding. Going back to the founding and going back to the three-fifths, I I heard the comments and I appreciate them and I respect them. But uh, the three-fifths compromise, of course, was an effort by non-slave states to not to try to reduce the amount of representation that the slave states had. It was not impugning anybody's humanity. Yep, same guy. Same guy. Also the same guy who threatened to literally kill House Minority Leader Hugh McKean uh, at some point this legislative session and later failed in an effort to oust McKean as leader once the and, session and was over. And to be clear, Hugh McKean is the leader of the Republican caucus, which Hanks is a member. <laughs> his, own, his own guy, yeah. He, <laughs> so, this is yeah. like trying to choke out your own boss. That's what, that's what this is. And this is the guy that's going to be running for Senate. U.S. Senate. Uh, Hanks was also one of three Colorado Republicans to recently sign a letter calling for a 50-state audit of the 2020 election. He is all in on the idea that the big lie is true and President Trump is still president or whatever, whatever rabbit hole you want to continue down on into. So the thing that's interesting about this, beyond the fact that Hanks is kind of a disaster in general for the Republicans— He is now basically the only Republican candidate who matters in 2022. Yep. What I mean by that is that he probably can't win the general election. I don't know if he can even win a Republican primary, but he's now the most important candidate of the cycle because he keeps two stories alive for every other candidate. (laughs) They're all going to have to talk about the big lie over and over again, and they're all going to have to talk about Republican infighting over and over again. Because of Ron Hanks, every candidate, not just Senate candidates, but Heidi Ganahl, the candidate for governor, she's going to have to talk about Ron Hanks. This is a disaster for Republicans. And it's like it's it's amazing because like we've been doing this for a long time. I've been here for 15 years and like every year there's like a new creature that kind of like embodies this role, right? First it's like Doug Bruce and like the 90s and early aughts when he like gets censured in the Colorado House of Representatives for saying something horribly and racist and awful on the floor of the state house. Then you have like Pat Neville and like the Neville clan with the like ultra extreme gun stuff doing recalls and trying to, you know, eliminate background checks to purchase weapons and concealed carry permits to hide them and whatnot. Then you have like Dave Williams who comes along a couple of years later and is just kind of a rank and file lunatic who, you know, like falsifies flyers that he says are created by Antifa and distributes them among the good people standing in front of the state capitol. And then you have Ron Hanks, whose real name is Lauren. And we know this because he ran for Congress in California and lost, (laughs) (laughs) moved to Colorado, found himself elected to the state house of representatives. And then all the other things you said happened. And this guy, to your point is now the standard bearer for the Republican party in Colorado. And maybe not the like leader in the race for U.S. Senate, but definitely the center of gravity for the United States Senate primary among Republican voters because now every single thing one Republican wants to talk about, whether it's jobs or COVID or or whatever, 
Ron Hanks is going to kick the wall in and say, no, we got to talk about the big lie. And this is really <laughs> going to screw up their chances at taking on Bennett, isn't it? I, I would think so. And I, it's going to hurt candidates in every other race, too, because this is not what they need to be talking about. But Hanks is going to force it. And because a lot of political journalists in Colorado are familiar with Hanks, they're going to go to him and, and ask him what he thinks because they know he's going to spew out something weird. I swear to God, if if we were just like drinking and kicking it around over the weekend and we we're like, you know what would like almost guarantee victory for Michael Bennett is if Ron Hanks got into the primary here. Like that that would probably be it, right? He would essentially be my preferred candidate as someone who <laughs> likes Democrats. <laughs> also, as, as a side note, if you could bet on this sort of thing, Ron Hanks would make a great prop bet as the most likely 2022 <laughs> candidate to physically assault someone in plain view. Like a Greg Gianforte, governor of Montana, like body slam through the table kind right. of thing. Right. Uh, 100%. There are enough uh, sports betting commercials on TV in Colorado. I bet we could find one of those sports books to you know, to start taking prop <laughs> bets on the U.S. Senate election. I bet we could get some action, yeah. like some get more smarter action on does Ron Hanks like actually commit physical violence against a journalist, political opponent, or other Coloradan throughout this cycle. Like, I would put money on that. I'd like throw 10 bucks at that for sure. Yeah, it, it seems almost uh, guaranteed, frankly. And I just hope nobody gets hurt. Maybe we can come up with a bracket. But I mean, this is what you were saying. Like, candidates for other offices like Heidi Ganahl, who like very badly tried to sidestep the big lie question from Alex Burness of The Post, Jesse Paul from The Sun, and Marshall Zellinger of Nine News all at once, kind of face plants in her opening of her gubernatorial campaign a couple weeks ago. Now, all of a sudden, she has to talk about it again because there is an out-and-out insurrectionist big lie supporter in the U.S. Senate primary. So maybe she thought that news cycle was behind her. Unfortunately, I think it's probably still in front of her. We have one other person who joined the Senate race on the Republican side. His name is Gino Campana. Who? Yeah, Gino Campana. No, I mean, like, who? Like, but who is that? I heard he's, you. He, he's a guy, uh, his name's Gino Campana. <laughs> <laughs> this is all in. <laughs> hey, dust off the opposition research file uh, for Gino Campana. We don't we don't have we don't have one. Who is that? He's a former Fort Collins City Council member, apparently, uh, a wealthy developer who may self-fund to some extent. I had forgotten this, but he was actually considered as a lieutenant governor running mate for Walker Stapleton when he ran for governor in 2018. So now he's running also for Senate. I'm sorry, his qualifications are Fort Collins City Council overlooked for lieutenant governor, and now I should be a U.S. senator? Well, when you consider the rest of the field, that's a pretty strong man. resume. <laughs> <laughs> Did not contract COVID at the <laughs> deadly insurrection of the Capitol is his best resume qualification at the moment. I think this is the case of of somebody who, you see this a lot of candidates end up getting into races because they're essentially a meal ticket for some GOP consultant. In this case, I think somebody like Michael Fortney, who ran Walker Stapleton's campaign in 2018. How'd that end? Uh, not well. Uh, right. 11-point mm -hmm. victory by Democrat Jared Polis. And the other reason that Gino Campana is in this race is because here's the other names. Eli Bremer, Ron Hanks, Eric Adland, and Peter Yu. Jesus Christ. Nobody knows any of those guys. I mean, we have talked about like the the bench being burned for Colorado Republicans on this show a lot over time, but like 
you now have five no names running in the U.S. Senate primary, and it's fucking October of the year before. Yeah, and they're going to be saying who knows what, and <laughs> and then everyone else is going to have to respond to him. My, I, I mean, Michael Bennett probably he can just like go get get some popcorn and just go hang out somewhere for a while. I mean, every time one of these clowns open their mouth, Bennett just gets to send a fundraising email. Like it, like. Did you see what my opponent said today? Like this is the this is like the gift that keeps on giving for this guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we didn't think that Michael Bennett was likely to lose his reelection for Senate in 2022. This all but assures it, I think. Yep. With pretty much done for this field. And like, there are people listening who may think that, like, oh, we will, you know, be proven wrong, and we will have our comeuppance. No, no, we won't, because. There is no other Republican left in Colorado who is considering just walking into the buzzsaw of doom that is a of all this primary and then the ensuing general election. Well, you can uh, that that's not necessarily true. They they keep coming out of the woodwork. They could just show up <laughs> at, at any point in the next nine months. <laughs> but you know what? I guess we'll find out together. Let's uh, talk about our seventh favorite member of Congress from Colorado. This is the Bo Burt Report. Yeah, it's Lauren Bobert of the 3rd Congressional District. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that district, that's the western slope of Colorado all the way kind of through southern Colorado into Pueblo. It's a enormous geographic district. Uh, Lauren Bobert is the freshman congressperson from that district. And she's a regular feature on this show because she says uh, stuff like like this in a committee hearing. Uh, from I, what I can tell, she appears to be a, standing on the deck of her house and rifle. I could be wrong, but anyway, here's what she had to say. Mr. Chairman, let's call a spade a spade. This bill does nothing to build back better. In fact, it frankly pisses on the American people. It's a political scheme by the Democrats to socialize this country and bankrupt American taxpayers. She's talking about the infrastructure bill that's being discussed. The widely supported, highly popular bipartisan infrastructure bill, that one? Yeah, but also the same one that apparently is part of a Democratic plot to destroy america right i can't believe she's like making like propaganda selfie videos from her porch in the middle of a legislative committee like i thought for (laughs) sure that was just like a ranting nonsense like twitter video that she does like relatively frequently it's sort of like when she said mr chairman i was kind of (laughs) surprised it's like now now let's throw it out to rifle colorado and this crazy person It's like congressperson on the street interviews like this, like just. (laughs) Here is the paradox that is Lauren Boebert. You just heard what she said about Democrats wanting to destroy America, yada, yada. Here she is recently as a guest on a Christian talk show. Has given me such a low opinion. It's kind of encouraging to hear you say that there's some Democrats out there that have a little bit of sense left. Yes, well, I I really want to share my experiences and my stories with them. And just to sit there and and yell at them and tell them how wrong they are isn't going to to do anything for anyone. Nothing productive will come of that. What? That's all you ever do. (laughs) I don't, like, why 
be this. Like, you have a choice to be something else. Why be this? I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, maybe the people that are listening to that Christian talk show, they're like, oh, yeah, she seems very reasonable, and they're not familiar with her. I don't know. I mean, the last time we played a clip from her taking a religious stage, it was like fire, brimstone, hallelujah. She was like waving a giant Bible around. So I'm not sure that like she does too much code switching for these particular audiences. But, you know, I, I, I just think she, that she's like an intellectually bankrupt, probably stupid person who like doesn't know what she's saying or and certainly doesn't mean anything that she says and is just on whatever... Twitter talking point that she got from her buddy Matt Gates or her, you know, idol Marjorie Taylor Greene at any given moment. She was the the lead in a Washington Post story this weekend, or a, I guess a column by Max Boot, uh, talking about Republicans intentionally embracing idiocy. And the first paragraph was Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert, and we didn't really have to for example, <laughs> right? For instance, but this is all a performance, as we've talked about before. And Boebert kind of said the the quiet part out loud recently when she talked about how she just looks for scandals to get herself more attention. Listen to this. But here's the thing, Dan. Uh, when when I don't see a headline attacking me, I kind of wonder if I'm not doing something right. <laughs> like, wait a second, where are the attacks today? Uh, I better I better start something. Yeah, that that that's a member of Congress. I'm like Colorado. trying to think of the like farmer in Peonia whose like crop got stopped by climate change or the like, you know, adjunct instructor at Colorado Mesa University who's looking for some reason to stay in the community. Maybe they could make some more money to like continue teaching at the university, like live in the third congressional district or like somebody in Pueblo who's like green chili operation is like doing okay. And maybe they're thinking about expanding. And this is the person they send to Washington to like fight for their interests. Like all she does is keep tabs and keep score about how much attention she's getting at any given moment, how many likes or retweets she has, how many fake news hits she gets that week. Like the coin of the realm for this person is not how many constituents did I help today? Did I pass any laws to make the lives of my constituents better? It's did I get attacked today and can I raise money off of it? And there's a question about we've touched on before in this podcast and, and you hear it a lot elsewhere. Are we playing into her game by talking about her? And I think... You can and should ignore most of her stunts, but you have to talk about some of these things. I mean, it's not like we're summoning her into existence. It's, she's not Beetlejuice. Like, she exists whether or not we say her name. It's just... Lauren Boebert, Lauren Boebert, Lauren Boebert. Don't do... Boebert. Bro! Uh, <laughs> wait, he's behind good thing me. it's hard to say three times. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't looking in a mirror, so I think he's safe. <laughs> But no, but then, I, I agree. I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it'll make her go away. Her power is not derived from the Get More Smarter podcast. It is the fact that it is important. I think to highlight her antics for the people of the third district who will decide whether or not they want to put her or somebody more reasonable who actually represents their community into Congress in the future. Like you can't just ignore this person. Then you give her the opportunity to just write her own story completely. I think that's worse. And you have to put it in context. For example, there was. Uh... She made national news a couple, uh, about a week ago because she announced that she uh, had filed paperwork to impeach Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. <laughs> and no, Jason wasn't misreading the word impeach. He was correctly reading a graphic that Lauren Boebert's staff put out that said, impeach Biden. <laughs> impeach him. Impeach him now. Well, when she was talking about the... Um the infrastructure bill, you know, pissing on the American people, there's her pee right there. You know, she left it in the committee. 
come on. <laughs> There's no pee in impeachment. Yes, there is. There's no pee in impeachment. It's in my committee testimony. Uh, but the context here is is it's important to point out the absurdity. It's it's fun to laugh at this mistake, but also to note that this is like the seventh time a Republican member of Congress has filed to impeach Joe Biden in nine months. Yeah, when she like put this out and corrected the misspelling or whatever, she was like, and I'm so glad to have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mo Brooks and like the same Louis Gohmert usual suspect, you know, team of six idiots join up on my like doomed, ill-fated, because like this is all just both sides bullshit, right? It's like Democrats impeached Trump twice. Why? Because he like lied relentlessly and then tried to overthrow the government and overturn the results of an election that he lost. Like those are pretty good reasons to impeach somebody. They're trying to impeach Joe Biden. Why? Because like they don't like the because fact he that he's spending money on things. Like well, Marjorie Taylor Greene filed impeachment paperwork like three days after Biden took office. Yep. And Lauren Boebert is just like diet Marjorie Taylor Greene. So it all makes sense <laughs> that she would wait, you know, several months to have the same bad doomed idea. I think they're on like a text chat all together and they're like, all right, I who, think they who have gets a text to do chat impeachment? That, <laughs> I think they have a text chat and then I think they have one without Bobert. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to talking about uh, another problem that plagues the Colorado Republican Party uh, in the name Tina Peters, which may be familiar to you from reading a newspaper at all in the last uh, six weeks, eight weeks. She's the Mesa County clerk and recorder who got caught breaking into her own computer system in order to try to prove that there was fraud in the 2020 election. Uh, all she ended up really proving was that there are people in elected office who are trying to break things. Tina Peters also was in Texas for four or five weeks uh, after she was news first came out that she was being investigated by the Secretary of State the district attorney, the attorney general, and the FBI. And uh, she's since recently come back to Colorado. That's what we call the investigation trifecta. <laughs> That's a quad quadruplet. Your local law enforcement, <laughs> your state law enforcement, and federal law enforcement all looking for you at the same time. And her benefactor is my pillow guy, Mike Lindell, which is which will make this jingle make more sense to you. <laughs> pillow talk with Tina. There is a definite attempt to take over the western slope of Colorado. So Colorado Republicans are, are learning, kind of, or trying to teach each other about the first rule of Fight Club, which is, you know, don't talk about Fight Club. And the second rule of Fight Club is don't screenshot texts from your party chairperson and share them on the internet. Oops. <laughs> State Republican Party Chair Christy Burton Brown, uh, there was a story recently came out, she was giving a school board candidate advice about what to say regarding Tina Peters. And uh, this was not good. She says, I don't know everything yet, but I'd suggest our candidates not say anything publicly because there are still a number of facts that need to be discovered. I've seen what's being claimed by some of election integrity people, but there are also claims that the video camera in the clerk's office was shut off and that a ballot marking tool was stolen Parentheses, not public info. Good call there. Not yet. <laughs> it is now. Uh, continuing with that quote, if that's true and it's still a big if, the clerk may be in big trouble. So because we don't know all the facts, it's probably ideal for all our candidates to wait. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. That didn't work. That I, went public. I, I still want to know like how the, the theft of the ballot marking tool, like how does KBB know that Christy Burton Brown, chairwoman of the Colorado Republican Party, and the various law enforcement agencies investigating this situation don't? Like, is this new information to them too? How does she know it? Did she talk to Tina Peters? Like, what is going on here? Is that different than a pen? A ballot marking tool? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big dauber, like from like, you go to bingo night, you get a big ballot marking dauber. The best part about this whole story, though, is that now supporters of Tina Peters are mad at Christy Burton Brown for not being a true believer in the big lie and blindly supporting Tina Peters. Yeah, I mean, because Tina Peters is like a hero, like on Telegram, right? And like, in like Mike Lindell's like social media website, whatever that was called, that's where she, like she exists as a as a you know scion of democracy and a protector of elections in the fantasy world that like the right wing like disinformation subjects live in. But here in the real world, I guess where Christy Burton Brown a- a- operates at least some of the time, she she's not. She's someone who is going to go to prison for like stealing election equipment and trying to prove the big lie. Nevertheless, Republicans remain completely obsessed with talking about the big lie. As Ernest Lenning reports for Colorado Politics, the El Paso County Republican Party is circulating a candidate questionnaire for school board candidates. I love this so much. I'm going to say that twice. School board (laughs) candidates. Asking them their opinion on the big lie and election security. But it's worse than that. It's like they're asking them what they think about Dominion. Like, it's not even right. just like, do you right. think the election was stolen or whatever? It's like, <laughs> what are your opinions about this conspiracy theory that we concocted that has been debunked multiple times and is like the subject of and billions of dollars of lawsuits? nothing to do with the school board. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be teaching your children about the big lie? Will you be teaching them about the evils of Dominion? Uh, if you're elected to the school board, what will you do to establish diplomatic relations with the Taliban? Like, these are all <laughs> irrelevant questions for a school board. Will you candidate. take the no tax pledge as a member of the school board? <laughs> but Republicans are they're helping to make sure that the big lie is the single most important question for the 2022 election. That's not good for Republicans because as yeah, it's, we it's saw with Heidi all, yep. they can't answer it. Yeah, it's really funny when Heidi Ganahl is like, this is like a trap question from Democrats. And then like every Republican is asking their own (laughs) candidates for office about it. And every chance they get. Absolutely amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. I wonder how many of the the questionnaires came back with like Dominion. What's Dominion? I don't I don't even know. Oh, they all know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they I'm sure they're familiar with it, but it that'd be weird to try to answer these questionnaires about things that have nothing to do with what you're trying to run for. Oh, for sure. And like, what's even weirder is that like for like big dorks like me, Dominion is like a deck building collectible card strategy game. <laughs> and that's like <laughs> what it was before any of this. <laughs> so, so if I were some of these school board candidates, I'd probably just try ah, like a deck building game. Like, you know, each player has a different deck of cards, draws their hand and like plays their hands. And there's a common pool. Like I would just answer about the board game and leave this whole conspiracy theory away from it. That would really blow some minds, I imagine. So before we get too uh, much further down the road here, we've got an awesome interview with Evan Wyloge, reporter for the Colorado Springs Gazette, the Denver Gazette, and ColoradoPolitics.com. He's been covering the redistricting and reapportionment process ever since it got started here earlier this year. Um, Without further ado, our interview with Evan Wyloge of the Colorado Springs Gazette. And now it is our great 
pleasure to introduce Evan Wyloge of the Colorado Springs Gazette, the Denver Gazette, and coloradopolitics.com. Evan's been covering redistricting and reapportionment for those publications for the entirety of the 2021 redistricting cycle, the first time Colorado's used an independent redistricting and reapportionment commission. Evan Wyloge, welcome to the Get More Smarter podcast. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Let me ask you to start with how hard has this story been to cover? This is some dry and complicated stuff, but it's very important. And and it's a hard thing to mix. I from experience, I I know how this can be difficult to do. Do you have trouble trying to figure out how to make this interesting to people, even though that they should know it's in, it's important? So sometimes yes and sometimes no. I was either lucky or unlucky enough, depending on how you look at it, to cover redistricting 10 years ago in Arizona. And I've been thinking about redistricting and how to cover it for 10 years since. It's uh, a topic that fascinated me then, continued to fascinate me, and I followed you know, court uh, proceedings, litigation that challenged those Arizona maps for several years. And so I felt like I was in a pretty good position, at least, uh, you know, with the kind of baseline knowledge that you would want to have heading into this cycle so that I could uh, pick it up and start reporting. So there are times when the reporting does feel tough in some regard because, you know, it's it's more like um, just creating the record of what's going on right. and, you know, describing how the process is playing out so that there is that record. And other times I've had some opportunities to do some things that I think are a lot more interesting and maybe not the obvious story to go after. You know, and some examples of that are like uh, when I recently did an analysis of all of the comments that were submitted to the commission. You know, that one was a lot of fun. And I hopefully that shed a lot of light on on this one interesting aspect of the process. They were all totally and normal, right? Totally normal. <laughs> except for Nothing weird about, going on there. <laughs> except for about 15% of them, which is so, so roughly one out of every seven that I looked at. And I will say that I... I had looked at all the comments that came in from like April through the end of August. And they did get a bunch after that. And we published the story kind of mid-September. So I was kind of missing some of those last comments. And I, and I know that we did get a lot. It might be worthwhile to go back and redo that analysis. But what I found was that roughly one out of seven had some language that matched verbatim with <laughs> other comments. And we're so talking like we word them. for word here, right? Like word for word. You know, it's a way, you know, when you read them, you just recognize, okay, two different people did not have these same thoughts in these same words. And sometimes using the same grammatical errors, sometimes <laughs> making the same factual errors. It's like you guys like don't know when, how the M dash works. Why are you trying? The, yeah, exactly. Uh, no space before or after. Um, but <laughs> like, for instance, there was a bunch of comments that came in that talked about how they didn't want Vail County or Breckenridge County. Eagle County into, or Summit County. Yeah, put into their map. So when you see that mistake repeated. Oh, Vail, 30 Vail County 40, is such a beautiful place. Breckenridge really County. <laughs> I try to get out there as often it's as It's great I can. for leaf peeping right, right now. Vail it County, is. Breckenridge County. Uh-huh. And so uh, th those sorts of things, you, you were able, I was able to see those. We used uh, some 
programming that is the same kind of thing that universities and high schools are using to look for plagiarism <laughs> in you know papers that get submitted. And I had used this once before several years ago when I was looking at model legislation. And so I kind of had the framework for Oh, like, like Alex stuff, like when one bill becomes a bill in 20 different states. Yes. And if you want to talk about that, I would love to talk about that. We can go, we can go real quick. We have a no, whole like, other episode on model legislation. Totally. And maybe it'd be worthwhile to come back and redo that here, you know, at some point. It was, it was a lot of fun when I did that about five years ago in Arizona. So uh, I think I lost track of where our question was, though. No, we were you, you were explaining that this is a relatively dry subject to cover, but there are some mm. times you can make it interesting, and especially going in certain directions like, look at all these verbatim plagiarized comments that these sides... <laughs> yeah. Are, and, and so can you give us, like, besides the, <laughs> the Vale, Breckenridge County screw up, like, were there any sort of, like, blinking red lights for you in those verbatim comments? Yeah, well, you know... The commission is prohibited from drawing districts that consider the location of incumbents. Right. And there was a handful, a bunch of comments, probably about a dozen or so, that all talked about how, I, I don't want to make, mess this up, So I, and I think that Bertha is a, it's a municipality. I don't know if it's a city or a town. I don't know. Let's call it a county. Why don't we just call it a county? Um there's a little municipality called Berthoud, and it is uh, somewhere up near Longmont, Boulder area. And there were about a dozen comments that came in saying that they felt like they really identified with Joe Nagoose and they really want to be drawn into his district. And they all kind of mentioned this weird thing where they said, you know, we're not some backwards cow town anymore. Or something along those lines. <laughs> and and so, you know, it's just odd to see all those same ideas in the same order. And it turned out that it was the um, it was the mayor pro tem of Bertha who had written those that that comment and shared it with some of her friends. And she said she didn't realize that they were all going to copy it verbatim and submit it as well. <laughs> and she was just trying to make some suggestions. At the top of the email wasn't copy and paste this message and put it into redistricting.com. <laughs> right. I was just thinking this. Isn't isn't it a little weird that we have everyone on these commissions now know where all these elected officials live? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid, right? Because, you know, within about an hour of any of the draft maps being released, I and a handful of other reporters who are covering this topic have posted maps that show where the incumbents live relative to these district proposals. Right, so, but they're not like street addresses or sort of like in Zillow where you see the area of the house, but not like the <laughs> intersection, right? Yes, and and to be sure, we in some cases have slightly moved the, that little pinpoint just far enough so that no bad actors would get a you know the wrong idea and try to go find some of these folks where we do i mean like as a person who cohabitates with a incumbent state lawmaker i appreciate that sure and that anonymity a little bit thank you yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i guess you know i will say also that uh it's been a little harder recently to stay up on top of everything that's happening with the commissions because they started just moving so fast with some of their action and granted this year got all screwed up for a variety of reasons. And I can, I can go into that, but here they are, you know, working really long 
working sessions almost on a daily basis over the last several weeks. So it got really tough to to follow all those meetings. You know, obviously I and a bunch of other reporters covering this are, were tuned in real closely on the night that the Congressional Commission made their final selection and we were all up kind of tweeting about it until the early hours of the morning. But, you know, the Legislative Commission is going to be releasing their third, this language here is so funky, their third staff plan draft map. <laughs> yes. That's, you know you there were meetings perfectly, about how to do this too. <laughs> so fucking clunky. Third staff plan draft map. Plan. Yes. The, the part that's in quotations is the third staff plan. But then you need to clarify that by explaining that it is a map, but only a draft map. Great band and name. So, third staff plan draft map. You know, that's a, that is a great band name. That is a great band so name. The, and so this is the, the same place because the legislative commission is about 10 days to 14 days behind the congressional. Right. And so this map that's going to be released today, today's Tuesday, I'm, I imagine this gets released uh, sometime in the next day or two. But the legislative commission's maps released today will be the kind of default that gets selected if when they have their final meetings over the coming days, they can't agree on a set of legislative maps with the required voting thresholds. And I'll just throw some more random info at your listeners here. So those thresholds are that in order to adopt a final plan, they have to have a eight out of 12 supermajority, mm-hmm. including two of the four party unaffiliated commissioners. And, and the makeup of the commission is four D's, yep. four R's, four U's, and you need a supermajority that includes at least two of those unaffiliateds in order to get a map to the court, right? Exactly. Super there duper majority. quiz on the end, yes. Uh, super <laughs> duper majority, yes. Super majority with some special requirements. <laughs> this is all so, very clear. <laughs> so you've covered redistricting now twice in two Western states, once in Arizona in 2011 and once in Colorado in 2021. We're not done yet, but... This probably makes you one of the most experienced redistricting reporters in the country because <laughs> you're in your 30s or something and you only ever could have possibly covered this twice unless you started doing it in like high school or college. So both of these states are Western. Both of them have independent commissions. Arizona's went into effect in 2001. So they had a one round of this beforehand. This is Colorado's first experience with an independent commission. Can you tell us a little bit about the process in each state, what the similarities are, what the differences were, and if you have an opinion, what each state is doing better or worse than the other one? Sure. Let me start by talking a little bit about the structure. So in Arizona, they passed an amendment, you know, that was similar in some regards in the year 2000, and that was called Prop 106. And it established that they were going to have an independent redistricting commission. Theirs is a five-commissioner makeup where you've got two Democrats, two Republicans, and one unaffiliated commission chair. And I think there's some valid criticism of that setup because it puts a lot of power in the hands of that that one chairperson. And so in the 2001 cycle, you had a chairman who uh, sided almost exclusively with the Republicans. And so the map was perceived, I think rightfully, to have uh, given an edge to the Republicans. The kind of opposite happened in 2011, where you had a chairwoman who sided with 
the two Democratic commissioners at just about every major decision, and the map was largely perceived as giving an edge to Democrats. And actually, that's been borne out, I think, in their congressional delegation over the decade because Arizona has nine congressional districts and five election cycles, nine districts, 45 two, you know, two-year term right. decisions there. And of those, there were supposed to be three districts that were competitive, but only one of them ever switched hands over the decade, and Democrats won the barest of majorities in that 45. So they would have gotten, what, what does that make, 28, 28, 18, 20, can I do math today? I, can, I cannot. <laughs> I don't know, man, nodding. I do the words. I was following along. <laughs> 23 and 22. That, that adds up to 45. Yes. So, yeah, so the Democrats <laughs> won one more congressional seat over the decade. And so I think that there's something to be said for them having worked that process a little bit better. And it all came down to getting a lot of unaffiliated applicants who the party and both parties do this feel is going to be more sympathetic to their side of things. And so it's been interesting to watch that in Arizona. This time around, I'm you know watching a little bit from afar and I, I can't quite tell where things are headed in Arizona. Now, back to Colorado. Colorado is different. And Colorado has this 12-member commission, and that arguably really disperses that power in a way that could right. be uh, you know, a whole lot better. And I, th- I think there's some truth to that. California also has a commission with a, a lot more commissioners on it. And don't ask me how many. I think it's either 14 or 15. 14. <laughs> they can't do they anything with like a gazillion more people. In California. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Um, there's also uh, some other differences that I've picked up on the, uh, Arizona commission was a lot more, I guess, independent in a regard from their own staff here. You have nonpartisan legislative staff taking a really active role from the get go in the process. It's almost like the commission here, or rather the commissions live within a framework of the nonpartisan legislative staffs kind of purview. That's true. I, I did notice that early on that it seemed like they were really looking to the staff for like, well, what do we do now? Which <laughs> is understandable because this is just a short-term thing for for these commissioners. So do you think this process worked as it was sort of envisioned when amendments Y and Z were passed? I, mean, I know that's a big question to ask, but no, it's it's a big question, but it's an important question. And I've had this discussion this week with my editors. Now, an editor is always asking you to see how to distill the big story. Mm-hmm. And so the, the conversation came up this week about, did the voters get what they wanted when we voted on this? The answer, unfortunately, I think, is it depends on who you ask. It's one of those kinds of questions. Because... There is so much wrapped up in the concept of independent redistricting. There's something for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you ask, I think, Republicans in this state what they wanted to see out of redistricting, they would have largely said something about competitive districts and, you know, no protection for incumbents. So did they get that? Well, 
The the incumbents all look pretty safe. <laughs> and they got uh, a competitive district, which is the new one, right? Yeah, there there appears to in this in this current conception of the map that they've adopted, there is one district that looks competitive. Um, so I don't know if that necessarily hits the mark for what what those voters who were interested in those things wanted to see. <clears throat> On the other hand, you might ask some other voters what they really honed in on and wanted to see. And they might tell you that they wanted to see this taken out of the hands of the legislature and, you know, done out in the open with transparency, open meetings and hearings and, and uh, designed to, to gather input from the public. So if you ask, did they accomplish that? I think they did. I mean, they held a lot of meetings. They made it very accessible for people to come down and talk about what they wanted to talk about, submit ideas online, draw maps, and send those to the commission as suggestions. Cut and paste things. So in that, <laughs> cut and paste things, if, you know, I, it was funny when, when I, I saw some interesting reactions to that story, you know, I had people say, oh, well, isn't this just organizers organizing? And sure. Portly. I mean, that's, that's true. <laughs> you know, and during the legislative session, you guys know, I know that uh, you'll have let's just say a uh, big union, bring a lot of members down to the town to the Capitol and get behind a certain idea. You know, that's organizers organizing, right? Yep. Oh, same, same idea. But you know, there's a line somewhere there. So I hope anyway, so those are the big things that I see voters, you know, looking at when they, when they did this, but there was also something else in this, in the amendments that is really relevant this week. And that is preventing any map from being adopted that dilutes the voting power of any racial or language minority. And we are about to see a real big fight over that idea in one week from today. So Tuesday, October 12th, there will be oral arguments and a live hearing at the Colorado Supreme Court where they're going to have the commission's attorneys describe how they followed the constitution and, you know, explain what they did and defend all of their choices. And you're going to have a bunch of other groups who have had a chance to look at those maps, draw their own conclusions. And they're all going to be filing briefs by the end of this week uh, to the Supreme court. And they're going to either say, this looks great and we support it. Or they're going to say, we think the commission failed to follow the constitution and we think that these things need to be changed about it. And we think that you, the Supreme court should send this map back to the commission and give them some specific things they need to change. And so far there's been a lot about this dilution issue uh, coming from Hispanic and Latino advocacy organizations, specifically some big ones that are, that are pretty active here on other issues as well, Claro, LULAC, in conjunction with the Campaign Legal Center, and Common Cause. I just saw an email from Common Cause. They're, they're going to be holding a press conference tomorrow to talk about issues that, that they have and what they're going to be saying. But from what I've heard in talking with some of the attorneys and the folks at these organizations, is they believe that this congressional plan just does not hit the mark and that it ends up actually diluting minority voices and minority voting power 
in certain parts of the state. And specifically, the current conception of CD3 in the southern half of Colorado. And they also say that they see problems up in the new CD8 because of how parts of Weld County are, are handled. Would you say, uh, on the whole then, on the idea of if this is what, did the voters get what they wanted, would you say kind of yes, mostly yes? I, I mean, I... I'm gonna I'm gonna take the easy out and say mixed bag. Mixed bag, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> well, so there's a, there's a couple interesting things I think that pop from all the things you just said there, and thanks for that walkthrough. But like, on the one hand, you've got a map that was eleven to one, so there were eleven yes votes for this map, one no vote. So you had your unaffiliated, you know, every one of them voted for this thing. So you met you met your threshold of two. You had all four Republican commissioners vote for this, and you had all but one Democratic commissioner vote for this. So if this map ends up in front of the court, these arguments go forward. Uh, the court says, "Sorry, commission, you didn't follow this law." It goes back. That's jarring in a way because this was a large, like it or not, love it or hate it, have problems with it or, or not. This was an enormous consensus, right? I mean, that was sort of something that I think a lot of people didn't see happening at the beginning of this. Unanimous was like probably the furthest out of reach. Although I do think that with some different conversations or politics or whatever, you could have probably gotten to a unanimous vote on this thing. But 11 to 1 is as close to unanimous as you can get without, right? So if, if this commission sends an 11 to 1 map to the court and the court says, ah, sorry, you got to start over again, what's going to happen? <laughs> is the court going to say, you got to start over again? You got to move this line over here. You got to, like, what that, what even happens at that point? And then what does the commission do and say, okay, so even if we get a super duper duper majority, it's still not going to be good enough if we don't hit these criteria according to the court. Like, that's the next part of the process. I have no idea what happens. I think that's when we light the Capitol on fire. <laughs> and just walk away. <laughs> so I think nobody knows for sure uh -huh. what exactly is going to happen. I think it's likely that if the court's not satisfied, they'll give some specific instructions to the commission about specific parts of the state. That's my guess, but we'll get to find out pretty soon. And I think that it's important to recognize that with, when it comes to minority voting protections, my understanding, having covered some of these issues over the years, is that there's not room to compromise on them. Right. You know, it's not, it's not the case that courts look at these questions and say, well, did you have a lot of consensus? Or did you hit the mark in one part of the state and not in the other, and then that's okay? It's it's kind of a little bit more of an of an absolute thing. It's either going to be you did it or you didn't in terms of meeting these requirements. And then and this dilution issue, some of the people who worked on the amendments have told me was very intentional. And they used language they've told they've told me again. I'm I'm not the attorney. I'm not representing any issue here or any side of this. But they've told me that they used this language that came from other court cases and sometimes out of other federal districts in order to strengthen these protections in ways that the courts have already kind of dealt with in some areas, but maybe haven't directly dealt with um, in our, well, our federal district, in, in, in the federal appellate system, mm -hmm. but uh, also some other case law that comes from other states. And so 
they will be able to point to some of this case law, even though it hasn't ever been applied in Colorado, and say, look, that language from that case you know, in 1994 or this case in 1986, it now has direct implications here. And you can't fudge it. You can't get close. You can't compromise. You have to actually show that you've done this. And one of the issues that I think they're going to run into is that the Congressional Commission did not have a official uh, racially polarized voting analysis done. And that's a very specific kind of analysis. The Legislative Commission, on the other hand, did have one done. And they had an expert who has worked on those issues over decades put together a very thorough, detailed analysis that explains to them, here's what we see in the numbers. Here's where we see minority populations and the voting patterns that require minority voter protections. Hmm. Because it's it's not a super simple analysis. They they have to meet some very specific criteria that have to do with where the minority group votes together and also where neighboring non-minority groups vote also together but against that minority group. And then what to do when you encounter that so this could go on forever then, not. right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, th- this oh, conversation yeah, would well, never end, at, theoretically. Well, except that they, you know, like in Arizona 10 years ago, they had these same official reports prepared. And once they get it, then they usually have the author come in and they'll have their lawyer for the commission and then the commissioners and the staff and that expert all have a discussion about this. And they'll usually walk away from that and, that, and have that report with some idea about, okay, here's what we actually need to do in order to have these maps pass muster. And so the commission is going to have to defend their decisions uh, with these districts uh, without having done that analysis, where an organization like LULAC has already done that Mm. analysis. They did at least a partial analysis of of the same issues, and you, you do it by, well, they did it using a method called homogenous precinct block voting analysis. Now you're just making up words, I think. I know. (laughs) Uh, Again, there's going to be a quiz at the end. So so what they do is they look at precincts that are, you know, as close to 100% white. And then they look at precincts that are as close as they can find to 100%, in this case, Hispanic. And then they look at all of those precincts that kind of hit close to those numbers and see whether or not they are voting divergent. And the, uh, the group LULAC, uh, you know, a pretty active uh, Latino advocacy organization, they said that they absolutely see what they believe is the indication that these conditions are met hmm. and that they require uh, those districts to be drawn in a way that's going to empower those minority groups to at least have an influence on the elections. And so they there's... This concern that's been voiced that in CD3, as it was adopted, there is a sizable enough group of Hispanic and Latino voters and that the makeup of that district, because it uh, is going to lean about 10 points Republican based on previous election data and voter registration, that they are set up to be defeated, the Hispanic and Latino voters in that district. And so... They're going to argue that 
that district in particular needs to be drawn differently. And then there's going to be a similar conversation about CD8. So real quick follow up on that, and then we're, we got to move on to some of the other stories you've broken and covered throughout this thing, because this is such a deep and heavy subject matter, we could probably have a 10 hour conversation about it. But I do wonder, and I've tried to have the conversation with a couple folks, and I, I get a, a little bit of mixed answers. So so first of all, you have this conflation between partisanship and like ethnic voting blocks, right? Where it's like, okay, so we've we've jammed all these Latinx voters into this one district that is Republican plus 10. It is clear in Colorado that Latino Hispanic voters tend to vote for Democrats. So politically, you've diluted their vote and or racially. So you have these two things that are kind of competing with each other, whereas preserving communities of interest is a higher ranked priority the commission must follow than sort of partisan competitiveness, right? So you have those two things fighting with each other. I still can't quite figure out, though, just like objectively, is it better, more equitable, giving these communities of interest more power, preserving them, however you want to look at it, to put large numbers of communities of color in several different districts so that they sort of have veto power or a strong voting block in a certain district? Or is it better to create what some folks refer to as a minority majority district, aka one district that has as close to 51% plus of uh, communities of color in order to not guarantee, but to give those folks the option to say, we're going to allow you to have a district that we can reasonably assume you will send someone from your own community to represent to either the U.S. House or the state legislature. I don't know which one of those things is actually objectively more be more better. From an equity standpoint, is it better to have more folks in more districts or many more folks making up the majority of one district? So it really depends on, like you were describing, which framework is going to be used, whether it's minority-majority districts, which is 50% plus one. Right. And that's where the Federal Voting Rights Act really has a direct uh, effect. And this is part of why there's confusion about what the voter dilution issues here mean. Because, again, the Federal VRA, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, deals with those minority-majority districts. And like a lot of those districts were minority-majority black districts in the South. There also happen to be two uh, in Arizona, one Hispanic in the central Phoenix area, and then another that is both Hispanic and Native American in the uh, Southwest part of the state. But there's this other concept of like coalition districts and crossover districts mm -hmm. where that minority voting block could be seen when you do this analysis, this uh, racially polarized voting analysis, as uh, coupled with a, a group of white voters who are going to together have that influence on the elections. The other area where the influence can be observed and kind of worked with in this context is in primary elections, as you all surely know, where if you, let's say, have a district that is 30% Hispanic, well, in that primary, they might actually make up the majority sure. of Great point. that Democratic primary voter Great point. group. And so they could end up sending a candidate to that, to that general election that is their candidate of choice. And so those are the considerations mm. that come into play with that area of the law that's not just 50% plus one. 
And I think that there's uh, kind of a growing idea about the first framework that you were describing, where if you create these districts, like in Colorado, like what we're talking about doing is creating two districts that each have something close to 30% Hispanic voters. Right. You could draw a district and it would be probably pretty weird that would be a minority majority district here in Colorado. But I've heard from a lot of folks who say that really doesn't reflect accurately what these communities, you know, see about themselves in common with right. other groups. And so it's not worthwhile to necessarily try to get everybody into that single district because we don't feel like the voters in Greeley and the voters in the San Luis Valley are necessarily a community that belongs together, even though you could theoretically draw that district. And you could say that they're both Latino or Hispanic heavy, but yeah, they're separated by hundreds of miles. So Right. And, you know, there's, I don't know if you've all seen this online application called Dave's Redistricting App. Uh, we've played with Quite a few lines ourselves, yeah. Cool. Yes. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. So you know that when you click after after you've made a drawn a map, you can clip over, over to the statistics area, right? And you can see, and they are using an analysis on that page that reflects that first conception that you were describing, Ian, mm -hmm. where you're looking for what is the percent of the population statewide that is Hispanic, and here. In Colorado, you're talking 25-ish percent, maybe a little bit more. And so then the question is, okay, then what if 25% of the districts, there are eight districts of two of them, have influence for that minority group? Right. And so, and you can gauge that then, it's almost like this like bivariate kind of analysis. So you're now saying, okay, could we hit two districts that fall somewhere north of like 25% or 30% Hispanic or Latino voters? That way we are giving influence to those groups in roughly that number of districts that would make sense statewide. And so I think that's an, an interesting way to think about it. And we could, like you said, have a much longer discussion about all that. Wow. That's complicated stuff. So next week on Tuesday, we'll find out if those arguments hold water, or at least we'll begin to hear what the arguments are. Yes. Um, let's switch gears. Jason, you want to go yeah, to the next piece here? You uncovered a couple of big scoops uh, related to what um, I'll gener generously say questionable lobbying efforts from a group of Republicans. Can you take us through that story a little bit? What, what did you find out? Sure. So... Coming back to the, <clears throat> the whole concept here of independent redistricting, we've separated in some large way the process from the normal political apparatus. And so you've got all those same normal political players and they'd like to have influence. So what they've all come around to this time with this new system is we've got 501c4 nonprofit organizations. These are referred to as dark money groups when they spend in elections. This is not exactly the same situation, so I'm not necessarily going to call them dark money groups, but they don't disclose where they get their money. Darkish. But then you can Yeah, exactly. Darkish. <laughs> dark gray money, money groups. groups. And gray money maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we've got this kind of constellation of of these 501c4 organizations that have surrounded the redistricting process. One of them employs Democrats, one of them employs Republicans. 
they're actually going to think it might be two employing Democrats. And so you can kind of draw conclusions from who they have employed uh, and working for them. And the, um, the story that you're talking about is concerning a few Republican operatives, I guess you could call them. Uh, there's a political consultant, two former lawmakers who work for this group uh, called Colorado Neighborhood Coalition. And they have one registered lobbyist, Alan Philp. He's a former, uh, I hope I get this right, he's the former executive director of the state Republican Party. So not I'm like your sure civic correct. engagement, nonpartisan like actor, right? Like plugged the guy, there's a picture in. of him wearing an elephant hat at the RNC. So like he's in right, there, right? Yeah. He, he's definitely got got a strong perspective, as you can say. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you all uh, handle the... Sure. Yeah, the the coloring of those of those uh, <laughs> shapes, but they got themselves into uh, this issue where they've got a complaint filed against them because of some of the things that I had reported on. Some other folks had reported on. One of those was um, some meetings that Alan Philp had had taken with folks, where he helped them draw maps, and then they and then those folks showed up to commissions and told the commissions these are our maps nobody else worked on them but us <laughs> and specifically i'm talking about uh the colorado farm bureau uh so they they kind of created some problems for themselves in that moment because they had their representative tell the commissions that nobody else had worked on them and that wasn't the case and so the democratic 501c4 working in this space you know, they, they worked with some of their lawyers and some of their allies to put together a complaint that essentially said these Republican operatives working for this other 501c4, they're not following the rules because we had also documented some contact between um, the two former lawmakers, that's um, Republican Greg Brophy and Frank McNulty, also a former Speaker of the House, because they had had some contacts with Commissioner of the Staff that the... Democrats who lodged that complaint said actually qualify as lobbying. They Which is okay that, if you um, register as a lobbyist. Right. Yeah. Like you're allowed you're to talk to the commission. You're allowed to be a partisan and talk to the commission. You just have to tell people what you said and when and how much you got paid for it, right? Uh, yeah. Especially, and so the, the part about this where they're being paid is important because that means they are essentially a lobbyist. Right. The same way that if somebody was being paid by some interest group to go down to the Capitol and lobby against or for legislation, they would, they would have to register as a lobbyist. They're being paid. And and that's different from, for instance, when uh, all those union members might show up to the Capitol right. to advocate for something. What well, we they're refer to paid. in the business as grassroots lobbying, volunteer lobbying right. versus paid lobbying. Right. And so uh, the secretary of state who received that complaint reviewed it and decided it warranted a full investigation. And so they are in that process now. They're they're looking into whether or not this group and the people who work for it did violate the state's requirements for lobbying disclosures. Uh, they also said that Alan Philp, the one registered lobbyist for the group, isn't doing his lobbying disclosures correctly. So at some point, we are anticipating that we'll hear from the Secretary of State on whether or not they are following the rules. 
and then we'll we'll know you know a little we'll know a little bit more about what's actually required. So that'll be interesting. Do you think this had an impact on how the commission made decisions because they're notoriously nervous about appearing to take sides? Yeah, and the original, or I shouldn't say the original, the preliminary staff draft map plan. No, preliminary <laughs> staff plan draft map. It is so fucking go. clunky. <laughs> it's it's fun. Um, that one was drawn. The commission staff said, based on some suggestions that came from these three rural counties associations, and I could try to name them, but I might get them wrong. But they, there are three organizations, and they each represent kind of a corner of rural It's Colorado. like Club 20, Action 22, and Progressive 15. Are those the three? Yeah. Uh-huh. But but sometimes I mix up the the, the pro action you gotta, and the number. You got to just kind of be here for long enough, and then the, the words and the numbers kind of seep in your brain. Yeah. So the commission had said when they released that first preliminary map that they did draw it based on some of the suggestions they got from those groups. And those groups, it later was revealed, also worked with Colorado Neighborhoods Coalition. And so arguably there's some question there about how much of, of the influence went into it, et cetera, and how can, can you trace it back right. from those maps toward those, um, those actors. And I'm certainly not in a position to make that decision, but we may learn more and, and especially in the course of this investigation about the lobbying activity. But then the same thing goes for this other story about uh, an incumbent, you know, Representative Matt Soper, a Republican from the western part of the state in the, in the state legislature, who also was on a meeting that was being recorded. And he was telling his folks, I think you guys covered this, he was telling his allies, here's how to go down to the commission and advocate for my interests, but don't tell them. That was like the me. funniest part of this whole story. Is like he didn't this hear this from me, but commits like the first rule of <laughs> politics, which is like never ever complete the sentence. Now I'm not supposed to say this, but yeah, uh, and you know, you know, maybe double the worst mistake by saying, "Hey, let's make sure that this is being recorded." Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's document so, this. <laughs> yeah, perhaps perhaps some missteps there. But I, I imagine this this will be ancient history by the next time he has to run for office. So then like so what ha- like what happens? Like let's say like these complaints go through the process and it is found that they ought to have registered and they didn't and they improperly influenced these things. But at the same time, you have these maps being adopted 11 to 1, you have the Supreme Court, let's just say rubber stamping them and, and sending them off to the races. The process gets tainted. These people get found that they've tainted the process, let's just say, for instance. But then does this map become the map that voters end up voting on anyway? Uh, well, you know, once the flux capacitor hits 88 miles per hour, <laughs> we will, what will happen is we'll just go back in time. This is the uh, last no, fucking thing I would ever want to do is do this entire thing again. Please, 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 please don't <laughs> even joke about that. This has been like a grueling couple of months. And we like have to have lines to vote on. 2022 is like not that far away. It's basically one year until the ballots drop for the next election. Yeah. Well, you know, realistically, if you needed to redraw a map, you could do it in a matter of hours 
for maybe a couple of days, like if you really, really needed to do it and you sat down with some people who know what they're doing and work with mapping and GIS software, which the staff is very qualified to do, and they have very specific things they are told by the court that they have to do, I imagine that they could make changes in, and they wouldn't take weeks. They wouldn't take months. So I think, I mean, it's really exciting. We don't know what's going to happen, <laughs> but um, that's definitely a possibility. But before we let you go, let me ask you this. What what percentage of the people who are on the redistricting commissions do you think would do it all over again if they knew six months ago what they know now, like in terms of how long this is going to take? <laughs> I'm going to say half. Wow. And, and I say that because, because I think some of the folks on these commissions, some of these people truly are everyday folks who are not part of the political process. Some of them, though, really are. Mm-hmm. And they, they come from the political world. They know political processes and they know kind of that there are games to play and strategies to follow to advantage their side. And so I think that those are the sorts of folks who would probably do it again. Whereas I think some of those other fortunate souls who, you know, aren't familiar with the state legislature or being at the Capitol and watching hearings go for hours and hours, <laughs> those folks might might reconsider, I would guess. <laughs> those are the ones stabbing the, themselves in the ear with the pencil. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, listen, man, thank you so much for spending some time with us. This is an incredibly complicated process. We're really, really grateful uh, for you to come on, explain it, explain some of the stories you wrote, explain how you, what you, your takes are. And, and, and we're not even done yet. I mean, the way I've been explaining this to folks is we're kind of in the third quarter of a four-quarter game. Do you think that's like a fair assessment of where things are kind of right now? Totally. I think we're about to enter the fourth quarter. But it's a game well, that will end. <laughs> you swear it, right? <laughs> Quintuple overtime 2026 redistricting commission meeting. <laughs> hey, it took it took five years for the court cases to shake out in Arizona. So were they voting on the old maps through those five years? No, they they there were all these challenges and none of them prevailed. So the maps were you know put in place for 2011 and then used for the whole decade, even though those challenges were made and went all the way to the Supreme Court into 2015. Well, let's hope that the voters in their infinite wisdom got it right in Colorado and that we have some maps to vote on and that those maps stay and that we go forward and this is a fair process. Like my whole thing is, was, and forever will be in Colorado at the present moment, and you don't have to agree or disagree with this, you're nonpartisan, you're a journalist. If there's a fair fight, more often than not, Democrats have been winning them, right? 2016, 2018, 2020, statewide elections, competitive legislative elections or congressional elections. There's a fair fight. Democrats tend to win them. So we're going to find out. We'll see what kind of political environment we're in in 2022, which is the first backlash year to a Democratic president we've had since 2014. We'll see what these maps actually look like, who's running in what districts, and and so on and so forth. But we would love to have you back to kind of recap this once the legislative maps get cemented and solidified. And uh, we're just really grateful for your time. Evan Wyloge, Colorado Springs Gazette, Denver Gazette, coloradopolitics.com. Thank you so much for coming on the Get More Smarter podcast. We all got a lot more smarter about redistricting. Thanks, guys. The thing I took away from, I think most from from that interview with Wyloge, is that everybody involved 
well, I shouldn't say everybody, for the most part, everybody involved is trying to do this the right way. It's just sure. incredibly complicated. Well, it's you're playing a brand new game with brand new rules, and the players are actually also the referees. So it's like a really weird system that got set up. And like, it, like he said, it's the first time we're trying this out. Arizona had the benefit of going through this once before in 2001 before he covered it in 2011, and now they're doing their third try at it. So I imagine like we will be learning things and establishing some norms and rules this time that will come in handy next time. I just, like I said at the end there, I just hope and pray that like we are going to end up with a legislative map or a you know House and Senate map on the state legislature and a congressional map for U.S. Congress that is functional, that works, that represents Colorado, and that is a fair fight. I really firmly believe that if these maps are drawn in a fair way, Democrats have a pretty good shot of maintaining and expanding power in Colorado because Democrats have been winning more and more elections, even on the statewide level outside of districts for a very long time here. So we'll find out what, how this whole thing goes in a couple of weeks when it goes to court in December, when these things are finally finalized. And then next November, when we vote on them for the first time, probably. We went through on coloradopolls.com some of the winners and losers of the congressional redistricting process. We're not going to go through all of those here. I just wanted to see a couple that maybe stood out to you and then a couple that maybe stood out to me. I, I'll give you an example. I, I That was really interesting that Congressman Jason Crow's district appears to be drawn in a way that makes him all but unbeatable, I think, in the next decade. Well, he would have been unbeatable in this district anyway. I mean, he took a right. district Mike Kaufman was winning by a single digit but a decent spread every year and then just absolutely destroyed him in 18 and made it an unwinnable seat for Republicans in 2020 really fast because Jason Crow's a badass. This district is even better than the one that he won twice in a row by big margins. So yeah, Jason Crow is going to be in Congress for the foreseeable future. Congratulations, people of the 6th CD. That is good news for you. The other Democrat who really benefited from the redistricting process, I, I think you'd have to say, is Jonah Goose, whose Congressional District 2, uh, which is kind of right now in the Boulder area, northern Colorado-ish, it's being change somewhat to encompass more of Western Colorado, but that's gone from blue to like dark, dark blue. I don't, yep. there's no way Nagoose is going to lose that race anytime nope. soon. No, and he's a good candidate anyway. And the district before that was good anyway, and he didn't face a real challenge anyway. But now, yeah, I mean, he can help everybody else with their campaigns because he's not going to have to work very hard. That's a very, very safe district. On the loser side of things, I, there are some Republicans in Douglas County, South Denver metro area, who were really hoping that there was a congressional district that was going to work for them to run. Somebody like former uh, House Minority Leader Patrick Neville, former District Attorney George Brockler, they were hoping that Douglas County might get joined with Southern Jefferson County and, and created a district that could be more winnable for them. The 7th Congressional District ended up getting moved down a little bit south around Colorado Springs, but still with the Jefferson County base. So Ed Perlmutter, the incumbent there, is probably still safe. 
Yeah, and you were saying that, you know, Neville Brockler and some of these other South Metro Republicans are losers. I would argue that every Republican in the state of Colorado is a loser because now Lauren Boebert is going to be safe forever in all likelihood. <laughs> yeah. And that means that she's the party's standard bearer forever and ever. She's in her like early 30s or something, and like she's not going away anytime soon. So every time she says something or does something, every other Republican running in a competitive election is going to have to answer for it. And she is going to be the one whose endorsement makes or breaks primary races, which will doom you in a general. So great job, everybody. Lauren Boebert took over your party in like three years. And the only way to get rid of her now is in a Republican primary, most likely. Good luck with that. I want to say one thing real quick here, though, just on the third while we're here. There's a, you know, uh, this week, uh, Senator Carrie Donovan kind of announced that she was suspending her fundraising efforts and, and kind of blasted the redistricting commission and pending sort of massive changes to the map, or at least significant changes to the map is probably not going to end up running in the third CD at the moment, you know, where she lives is actually drawn into the second CD. So it's not even in the district. But I do want to say that not for nothing, the way Carrie's been running this campaign the amount of fundraising she's had, the amount of momentum she's had, the media she's put out, the the good stuff that's been coming from her campaign, and the fact that Lauren Boebert is just such an unbelievably low-quality human being, to say nothing of her like candidacy for office, if anybody, if any Republican can lose this third congressional district, it's Lauren Boebert. And if any Democrat can win this third congressional district, I think it's Kerry Donovan. So, not for nothing, but Kerry, if you're listening... Wait it out a little bit longer. Just just keep an eye out. See what this thing actually looks like. Because I believe that this is a nine, 10 point district. She can lose it. You can win it. It's going to be a, 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 a knockdown, drag out, knife fight. But I would put some money on you. Just saying. Let's get to a couple of quick hits and then we'll get out of here for this week. Our good example this week for Republicans and performative obstruction, which tends to be all they do these days, is Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Here he is talking about infrastructure discussions. Well, again, I hope the progressives stand their ground so that nothing happens. That would be the best result. And then when we win in, in November 2022, we can start reversing the damage of the Biden administration of the progressive left. And we'll, we'll pass real infrastructure uh, uh, programs and bills. And we'll, we're, we'll repurpose that $700 billion that isn't even scheduled to be spent until 2022 through 2028. That's a Republican senator saying, I hope nothing happens on infrastructure. And this was before he put out disinformation this week saying that um, vaccines are to blame for the Delta variant. Oh, heck, it's a, it's heck a, of a guy shame. that Ron Johnson. Guy with such a cool name like Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, like has to be such an epic douchebag. Like it really sucks. It does indeed. Speaking of COVID, California announced that it will be requiring vaccinations for school children pending FDA approval of a COVID vaccine for waste of a good name age five through 11. We talked about this last week, Governor Gavin Newsom of California, after he, after his big win in the attempted recall election came out and said, Democrats need to be tougher on vaccine and mask requirements because people, voters want this. This is, this is what the majority of people are, are looking at us to do. I, I think this is a good first step, and, and I, I hope it forces other states to follow. He's right. California has the ability to kind of set tone for the country in ways that 
most other states just do not and cannot because of the size of their economy, because of the size of their population. Like they have the ability to kind of like be the first ones. This is why when you like open up a new mattress, there's like an entire tag just for California. They have like their own regulations <laughs> right. about materials and whatnot. They can do this. Like if Rhode Island decided that they were going to do this, like they probably wouldn't be setting the tone for the whole country. This is a big deal. This is like probably one out of five school kids in the country live in California. So I do think that like there's something to be said for this, like, kind of leading the country. And, and yeah, and Newsom is doubling down on the fact that he knows poll after poll shows us, his election results show us, and common sense will tell you that vaccine and mask mandates are popular, supported by a large percent of the public, and will hopefully get us out of this thing, unlike any of the plans that these other people are putting forward. They work. They work. Donald Trump, that guy who used to be president, uh, if you had purged that from your memory may be moving closer to running in 2024 for president again. As the Washington Post reports, an informal poll of 13 of his current and former advisors indicates that 10 believe he's going to run, two say it's a public relations ploy, and one other said he was not sure. Trump himself is saying, quote, we're not supposed to be talking about it yet from the standpoint of campaign finance laws, which frankly are ridiculous. (laughs) I bet he thinks that. Yeah, I think you're going to be happy. Let me put it that way. That's what he says. There is no difference between the campaign, the grift, and the public relations effort. Like, those are all the same thing. Like, this guy ran for president, didn't think he would win, won, used the office of the president to enrich himself and his family, lost, lied about it, used all of that to rip money out of gullible people's pockets and jam them into his own oversized pants, and is now doing it again. The story talks about how some Trump advisors are worried that if he declares too early, he'll impact, perhaps negatively, the 2022 midterm election, which I've said before, I think this is one of the ways that Democrats maintain majorities in Congress is if he does this. There's no way that Trump can possibly stop himself from announcing for president in the next nine months, is there? I don't think so. I, he can't suffer the ego loss. He's still, still, he gave a speech, I think, in Georgia last week where he said the election was stolen and rigged and all this kind of shit. So he's like not moderating his tone on that at all. And if these guys want to have 2018 or sorry, 2022 be entirely about the big lie and Roe versus Wade, this is about the best thing that could happen to Democrats in the midterm. Absolutely. And finally, Brian Williams of MSNBC, I'm going to say he wins the internet for the last week of September. In this story about right-wing lunatics yelling at school board meetings, uh, he's got the last word, and it's pretty good. Your children and your children's children will be subjugated. They will be asked, have you been a good little Nazi? Hail Fauci! Perhaps you remember your first edible. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, Brian Williams. My first edible... Put me on the ground eating a bag of Cheetos. I don't know what got into that guy's stash, but it's really scary. Uh, that's it for us this week. Yeah, the Get More Smarter podcast is a production of ColoradoPolls.com and Progress Now Colorado. Your hosts are me, Ian Silveri, and one... Jason Bain. Ethan Black engineers and produces our show. Talene Sample is our intern, and the phenomenal Breakmaster Cylinder made our theme music. Thanks so much to CityCast Denver for cross-posting with us this week. It's been really fun. We hope you guys got more smarter. We certainly got more CityCasted. Mask that face up and vax that ass up. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or 
wherever you get your podcast. Rate the show. Leave us a review on the iTunes store if you got more smarter. It helps a lot. Find us at getmoresmarter.com and please send all angry, timid, tepid, and non-angry rants to angryrants at getmoresmarter.com and we will see you next week. 